Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover the Bachman book, Roadwork, the prologue and part one. Let's start the show. Barton George Dawes is not happy about a new highway extension project that is going to go through his town, right through where he lives and where he works, at an industrial laundry. The voices inside his head tell him he is right to be upset. Without quite knowing why, Dawes purchases two high-powered firearms, skips out on looking for a new house, and drops the ball in finding a new location for the laundry. This ultimately leads him to resigning his job seeking out a man with ties to organize crime to try and obtain explosives, and returning to an empty house after his wife has left him. Yeah, as long as the voices in your head are in unison, <laughs> yeah. then everything you do makes perfect sense. It does. So this is now the fourth Bachman book that we've read, and the last of the four collected in the Bachman books themselves. And Roadwork was originally published in 1981 under the Richard Bachman name and was the 10th book published by King in total. And I dug up the original cover of Roadwork, Jay, and I'll put it in the show notes. But the cover states that this is a novel of the first energy crisis. Yeah, that that's a real (laughs) selling point. I mean, the the marketing team was working overtime on that (laughs) subtitle. I mean, why wouldn't you pick this up when you're in the airport and you're like, hey, I need something to read on the airplane. What? A novel of the first energy crisis? I'm all over that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the second energy crisis just passed by, but I want to spend some time thinking about the first one. (laughs) How did this all start? Uh, Well, sort of timely, Jay. We're in what, fourth, fifth energy crisis right now? Who knows? People are filling up plastic bags with gasoline. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they're using them to explode overpasses in, on highways yet, but I did see some guy blew up his Hummer because he had mm-hmm. so much gas in it. So it is interesting, though, because there is a look back at the first energy crisis, the second energy crisis. Uh, there's been a couple news articles about it lately. An interesting fact that I dug up about this was that in the nonfiction book Dance Macabre, Stephen King said that he gave his agent both Salem's Lot and Blaze and said, one of these will be my second novel after Carrie. Which one should it be? And they were talking about it. And his author said, you know, I think you should go with Salem's Lot. I think it was originally called Second Coming at the time. But he's like, that's the one that's, you know, Mm -hmm. a better book and is going to, you know, you might get typecast as a horror writer. Well, it turns out that it wasn't Blaze that Stephen King gave, but it was Roadwork was the other novel, the straight novel in comparison to uh, Salem's Lot. But he had to lie in Dance Macabre because that came out before the Bachman identity was known. That's because, as we all know, to blaze means to bluff. And he's probably (laughs) lying in a poker game or something. Yes. He owes somebody some money. (laughs) In the initial Why Was Bachman introduction that's in the collected 1985 Bachman books, he states that he's not very fond of this novel. He said, um, it was written between Salem's Lot and The Shining. It was an effort to write a straight novel. I think it was also an effort to make some sense of my mother's painful death the year before. A lingering cancer had taken her off inch by painful inch. Following this death, I was left both grieving and shaken by the apparent senselessness of it all. I suspect Roadwork is probably the worst of the lot, simply because it tries so hard to be good 
and to find some answers to the conundrum of human pain. Human pain as expressed by the first energy crisis. <laughs> However, in the more recent introductions to the Bachman books, King has stated that he had changed his mind and that roadwork had become a favorite of the early books. I'm holding off judgment. You and I talked briefly about this, but I'm finding that all four of these books are quite different oh, yeah. in some odd ways. And um, I'm not exactly sure where I fall on which one I like the most or, or dislike the most as well. But uh, so far, I'm sort of digging this one. Yeah, the story took a little bit longer for me to get into enough to say that I'm enjoying it at this point. And I'm going to hold off any final judgments, of course, until we finish it. But I kind of feel like King's early opinion was like the first few chapters of the book. <laughs> and then his later opinion was on the later chapters of part one, where it's, um, you know, it, I think it starts off a little rough, but it finds its pace and and stays on track in a pretty good way. So I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah. The last thing about the book before we get into some of the themes was that there was an adaptation of this announced in 2019, and it was going to start filming in early 2020. Obviously, things changed in early 2020 that probably put a halt on it. So I'm not sure exactly where that stands. I'll put a link into an article about it. Uh, it, it was going to have Andy Muschietti, I think is how we pronounce his name, who directed so. It and It Chapter 2. He was going to be one of the producers of it. So maybe it had a good shot. Uh I did find it a little bit interesting, and again, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out, but Rage, Stephen King wanted out of print because of the themes in that book and the fact that there had been some, if not totally confirmed incidents that were tied from school shootings to that book. This story seems to be taking a similar tact with a guy purchasing some guns, and I'm not sure how it's going to turn out, but uh, he didn't seem to have quite the same qualms about this. Yeah, and I don't think it's spoiler territory to guess that he clearly has designs <laughs> to destroy this construction site. Yes. And okay, so Rage is a school shooting story. Running Man has a guy hijacking a plane and flying it into a building. <laughs> yeah. And this has basically, you know, terrorism of a construction site. Almost every one of these Bachman books is really problematic from that perspective. Yeah. And you failed to mention the one about the teenagers who are basically signing up for suicide because they're all going to die except one of them. Yeah, but that's... <laughs> that's I, way I don't know different. how to categorize that exactly. Like, I don't want to make light of suicide, but it's not hurting other people in the process. And it doesn't represent a kind of mass destruction and mass murder. Right. True. If you set off an explosive in a crowded place, you're hurting innocent people. Same with the airplane. Same with the school shooting. Right. Yeah, but 99 kids dying, getting shot on the road. That's different. Voluntarily. Voluntarily. It's all good. Well, it may be a common theme for all of these books by Richard Bachman is that life sucks. Indeed. And I think one of the things about this book that has drawn me in once I got past those first few sections of part one that took a little getting used to was that this book hit home in a lot of ways for me. Middle-aged guy, life isn't quite what he thought it was going to be at this point in time, feels like a cog in a bigger corporate machine, mm. and sort of not sure what to do with his life and feeling like the wall's coming down. I'm not saying that I'm anywhere near the, in the place that, that Barton was, and I, I'm very happy with my life. But just sort of like, I think I, I was like, oh yeah, I can relate to this guy, or I know types of guys like this. And I think what really surprised me about all of that, Jay, was that King was writing this in probably his mid-20s. Yeah. And somehow he like nailed all that ennui and 
sort of the way life has beaten you down. And I can't imagine that it was like that for King at age 20 something. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he was writing a lot of the people he knew, like from when he worked at an industrial laundry and the people he grew up with in in rural Maine and, and things like that. So I'm sure he had some life experience, but it's just not personal direct experience. Yeah. But yeah, we talked about like when we were... Um, when we we're talking about rage, King himself was only a few years older than the characters in the book. So, oh, really easy to just, you know, write, write like you, you just live through your own high school experience. But this one, yeah, he's really stretching in terms of life experience. And it seems like he's nailing it. Yeah, I think so. And again, n- not much seemed to happen in those first sections. And it was one of the things that I think through me is that it takes a while before you even learn our protagonist's name because the first names you encounter are Freddie and George. And there's not a lot of like, what is this exactly? Like you get a sense that they're talking in his head, but like, is George talking to Freddie because he's Fred or is Fred talking to George because he's George? And it's not, it's this whole other thing that's going on. And we're starting to learn as we get through this first chapter about why Freddie and George are used and what happened with his kids and his relationship with his wife. And once that starts to make itself clear and you get a better sense of the narrative arc of this story, I think things picked up as we talked about. Because there's not really a whole lot happening in this. You know, you spend a lot of time at the gun shop with him buying guns and you're not exactly sure why and what the big deal is. Yeah, it's interesting how, I guess, how intelligent Bart is, or I'll just call him Dawes. When he goes into that gun shop, he admits to himself, I know zero about guns and I'm about to talk my way into the purchase of some guns for something that nobody would ever sell me guns for if they knew the truth. So he has to lie about knowing enough about guns to get a gun and the reasons for the gun and doesn't seem to show up in the gun store with anything prepared. Right. So he's navigating that while he's having this almost psychotic break where he's got two alternate personalities talking to and arguing with each other in his brain. And he doesn't have disassociative identity disorder. This is just, I think his he's breaking down and he's he's given names and voices to opposing opinions and perspectives i think within his mind and because they have these names they argue with each other and say each other's names over and over again so it's kind of amazing that he actually manages to buy these guns right. i could never have come up with this no he's Certainly having like not on the fly he's having like three or four conversations at once you know it's the the yeah. two the two ideas in his head talking his sort of meta narrative about what's happening and then the conversation he's having with the gun store owner. And it's just like, whoa, how are you keeping all this straight? I mean, the, the gun store owner is motivated to sell the gun, so he's not going to push too hard. Right. But there are a few like Slips. tricky moments. <laughs> and he's like, wait, wait a second. What? what Why that? am I giving you this gun? <laughs> like the most powerful gun in my store? Yeah, I'll, I'll sell it to you. No problem. <laughs> One of the things that we see also building up is just how tragedy can ruin or strain somebody's life. Mm. We see that this is a man who was happy at one point, felt successful in his work, felt successful and content in his life, and circumstances outside of his control and the tragedy of the loss of his son, those things have contributed to making him hate his job and resent his marriage and kind of withdraw from the love of his wife. And we get some scenes and some flashbacks where he was a truly 
happily married man, and he was a successful person in this company and rose through the ranks and impressed the hell out of the owners so much that they put him through college Mm -hmm. so that he could come back and put that learning to use and help the company, right? And now he's just a shattered shell of that person. Some of the tragedy of the story is that this happens far too often to far too many people as they just get older. And it's sort of like a resignation, like the dreams you had as a kid just didn't happen. And this is now your reality of your life. Yep. But fortunately, not everybody has as much tragedy as thoughts. Right. And we see how much that can really just break things apart. The the thing that got me is that when he's telling that story to the young buck salesman about, you know, mm. how he got into this position, we we hear a lot of the backstory, right? And you learn that the reason he got married was because he actually got this girl pregnant and they decided yep. to get married. And he doesn't resent that, though. He's like, the place I am now is because of that. But you can tell in the other flashbacks that they have with his wife that he had a really wonderful, loving marriage, it seemed like. Yeah. Uh, the two of them were in tune. They they just seemed attracted to each other and happy with each other. They made decisions together. They worked cooperatively together to get the TV that they wanted. And he realized mm-hmm. he would do anything for her. But like they were, it seemed like a partnership. Yeah. So when you see what happens in these later things where he's just keeping secrets from her and not telling her anything, and they just seem to be people living in the same house, but not together. I think that that's that tragedy you're speaking about. Yeah, I mean, there was one line that really hit home for me, which was he's in the middle of a conversation with his wife and he's thinking, I'll just scream now, I think, for lost things, for your grin, Mary. Pardon me while I just throw back my head and scream for the grin that's never there on your face anymore. Okay? He can't even say that out loud, but it's that. It's that that constant realization every time he sees the sadness on his wife's face it breaks his heart again. Mm-hmm. And that broken heart makes it impossible for him to try to do anything to fix it. It's just a downward spiral to where this guy's headed. Yeah. Unless you think that the idea that 21st century man is just a cog in a big corporate machine, he feels that way too back in 1970 mm-hmm. something, especially because the way he saw the business change. So you had alluded to the fact that you know the owners took a shine to him and He quickly moved from being a guy who was working in the summers at the laundromat to being somebody who was working there full time, got sent to college so that he could move his way into management and then move his way up through to become sort of the manager of the entire laundry. And now the owners have had to sell the family owners, the mom and pop shop Mm -hmm. to a bigger corporation where they're just another line on the balance sheet. And he doesn't have any piece of that. And so that's also adding to the fact that life is not great for Mr. Dawes here. I imagine that this reflects a little bit of the greater society, too. I I think there's a lot of angst in the early 70s. We've talked about how King has explored the late 60s in his stories about college and like Hearts in Atlantis and things like that. So I think that, you know, once the summer of love came and went and this fuel crisis happened and Nixon was ousted, the culture of the country changed. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people just found themselves dissatisfied. They couldn't be free anymore. And everything just felt, I don't know, I I wasn't old enough to really see it change or or watch it happen around me. But the culture of the United States changed pretty dramatically in, in these few years. So this Dawes guy lived through that. He His whole adulthood through that is like he went from when the country felt freer and happier in a lot of ways to the 70s that sucks. Yeah, well, he's also not the baby boomer generation that King's normally writing about, right? Mm. He's a man in his 40s 
in the early 70s, which puts him in the earlier generation, right? He's the lost generation. He's not old enough to be the greatest generation because he wasn't, he was too young to fight in World War II, but he's also not part of the baby boom. Um, so he's in that weird lost generation that King doesn't normally write about and really nobody writes about. It's that, that yeah, missing- Yeah, and he's too old and, to have been in Vietnam. Right. Yeah. So he fits into this place where he's like, society is very different for him. And those freedoms that you talk about that somebody like King might have had in the late 60s as a baby boomer are different than what he's experienced. Mm. So the changes that are happening are, are very significant for him. Yep. So all this is causing this break in reality that we've been talking about. And, you know, his marriage is breaking down. Society's changing. Of course, we can't forget the energy crisis and how important that is in all of this. Yes. But the way that he's dealing with it is very much a denial of reality. Yeah. At least at this point, he's not facing anything head on. He seems to be either putting off what needs to happen or thinking it's not going to happen, whether that be him having to move him having to find a new place for the business or him having to get over the loss of his son. Like he's just putting all those things in the background. And I mentioned earlier in the recap, he doesn't seem to know what he's doing. Like you don't get a sense of why he's buying those guns. He doesn't have, seem to have a sense of why he's buying those guns. Mm -hmm. He admits towards the end of the chapter that he has cashed in his life insurance policy. But when he did it, he didn't have a plan. He just knew he wanted to do that, to have cash on hand. And that was the first thing he did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's delusional. It's like he's not even being a procrastinator because a procrastinator is underneath everything an optimist. The procrastinator says, I will get there on time, even though I'm already <laughs> running late, because I'm so optimistic that I'll just find a way to get there in less time than it takes. Things will work out. <laughs> things will work out. He doesn't see things as working out. He just is putting off the inevitable and he knows the inevitable is terrible and he doesn't ever want to face it. So he's delusional. And that has caused him to have some kind of break with reality. And everything in his life is breaking down. His marriage is breaking down. Society's breaking down. The energy crisis, the company's changing. He's still grieving the death of his son. So much of his life, even his thoughts, I guess, like his, the, the way he's He's thinking about and even experiencing consciousness is breaking down. And it's funny, you, you mentioned that he's not optimistic about it. He's just ignoring the inevitable. But it's not helping him that because he is sort of the epitome of stability mm -hmm. for his wife, for his company, for his neighborhood. I don't know if people necessarily look up to him like a paragon of virtue or anything, but like hey, he's the manager. He knows what's going on. Like if he gives us, if he tells us he's going to close the deal, he's going to close the deal. And you know, yeah, it, solid. If, if he says things are going to be okay, things are going to be okay. So they're all anticipating that he's not going to be the one who's losing in his mind and going to screw up. And so he's able to stretch this line of BS right up until the end until it all falls apart when the poor driver, Johnny Walker, is killed in a car accident. And he says that that's not the incident but it sort of is, right? Because mm -hmm. this is when he comes face to face with his own mortality because a young guy has been killed. And so it sort of sets off the rest of the events of him resigning, him admitting that he lost the deal on the on the new factory, him telling his wife they don't have a house to move to. And it's bad. <laughs> it's not, it's not, he's not in a very good place at all. Not only does he have like this, this armor of everybody assuming he's, he's like, rock solid and everything. He's also going back to his, uh, I guess, ability to lie effectively. 
it just it permeates every interaction he has. When somebody when I think the the corporate boss questions him about the new factory location, he has a wonderful and believable <laughs> laundry list of all the reasons why he shouldn't put the money down yet because it's if I wait, I could do this just so and it'll save us $20,000. You'll see and so he's got that guy salivating and like, all right, you clearly know your, know the business. You know what you're talking about. Then do it the way you want to do it because yep. it'll save us $20,000 and we'll still get what we want. Wonderful. I think the other piece that sort of sets him off is that all these people are people that he knows mm. and that he has relationships with. But then he goes to a stranger, one-eyed Sally Magliore, the uh, organized crime dude, uh-huh. and he's planning on buying explosives from this guy. He's confident when he first meets him, you know, he calls him a dork and, and and is able to get away with it without getting his ass kicked. But he has this script in his mind because everything else has sort of gone to at least a little bit of plan. He's able to pull the wool over his boss's eyes. He's leading his wife on all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, you know what? Th- this guy's not going to want to sell me the explosives, but eventually he's he's going to. And this is the script I've written. And that's not what happens. And when Magliori's like, there's no way I'm going to sell you explosives. You're... You're crazy. Yeah. Like you're, I know you're uh, straight and you're not working for the feds and you're not trying to to sell me out, but you're nuts. And there's no way I'm going to sell you explosives. Mm-hmm. E- even if I believed in what you were going to use them for, like you're crazy. When he realizes, oh, I can't BS everybody. Then Dawes realizes he's really screwed. Yeah. And like, look, I'm a criminal, but I'm not crazy. Oh. <laughs> uh. All right, so uh, we're getting into this book. Things are going well. Um, do we have any Dark Tower thinnies, Jay? Surprisingly, I was able to track down a couple. Uh, yeah. So the first thinny that I found was that the new road that will pave over Dawes's life is the Route 784 Expressway. And if you add up the digits in Route 784, it adds up to 19. Go figure. As you knew it had to, yes. That king is a sly one. He didn't just say Route 19. He said Route 784 and made you do yeah, the math. That's right. <laughs> well, that's what makes him such a sophisticated writer, Sean. He, <laughs> he gives us two and two and lets us figure out four. No, two and two. He gives us seven and eight and four and lets us figure out 19. There you there go. There you go. <laughs> Another one along the same lines is that the price of the pistol that Dawes buys by itself is $289, which if you add up those three <laughs> numbers, it comes out to 19. Very I nice. could do this all day, folks. Well, actually, you could only do it twice because there's lots of other numbers in this part of the book and none of the other ones added up to 19. I think both you and I went through them each yeah. and could not find other ones. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, I tried to do it yeah. for the entire time I was reading, but... Um, I poked fun at you a couple episodes ago because you p- picked out one word, I think it was interloper, and said, hey, they use mm-hmm. this one in the Dark Tower. I'm going to do the same thing. After Dawes and, and his wife, Mary, have their little bet on bringing in money, they haven't told each other what they're doing. And so they finally sit down at their small dining room table like adversaries, but oddly friendly gunslingers. Mm. Is Dawes a gunslinger? Is his wife, Mary, a gunslinger? Could they be part of a quartet? I think they are part of a content. They are. They're a family. That's true. You know, I was going to give you a hard time about this, but then I thought about it. And not only have I used the word interloper as a thinny in the past, every time there's been a rose in a story, I think I've said (laughs) 
I think that's a thinny. Yeah. It's a rose. It's just a really common flower. Why wouldn't it be a thinny? Yeah. So I'll allow it. All right. The last thingy that I found was there's a line where Dawes is thinking back to a time when he was playing on the beach with his son, Charlie, and the bright blue sky and the sun beaming down like the face on one of those idiotic smiley smile buttons was in his thought. And that uh, idiotic smiley smile button is pretty much what Flag wears on his denim jacket, right? That is true. Now that's Flag in the Stand and not the Dark Tower. Well, yes, Flag in the Stand has the smiley button, but Flag is in the Dark Tower. So by the transitive property of Flag slash whatever you want to call them, it's a thinny. I wanted you to say that so that I could come up with my last Dark Tower thinny, which also uses a transitive property. And that is that <laughs> Dawes' boss, Ordner, which is very similar to the word order, and I think he's supposed to represent order while Dawes is going towards that chaotic uh, area now. Ordner lives on Henry Drive. Mm. And our good friend Lloyd Henry from The Stand. I can dig it. I can dig it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that this novel is probably going to get more violent and gross in the sections to come. But in the meantime, was there anything in this first section that involves yucking it up? I found one thing that I thought I'd mention here. When Dawes is shopping for the guns and the gun shop owner tells him about this massively powerful rifle. He says, this is the 460 Weatherby. He goes on to say, this baby will spread his insides over 20 feet. Ugh. Yeah, and I thought that was pretty gross. So mine's a little bit of a stretch because the line itself is not that yucky, but when he's talking to Ordner, and Ordner realizes that he screwed the pooch Dawes has, he says, my God, do you want to end up carrying your ass home to Mary in a basket? And that line by itself is not bad. Like he's just saying, you're going to have to go home to your wife and face the consequences. But it mm -hmm. reminded me of this imagery that King has gone back to again and again of a basket to carry a dead person home in, which is how supposedly when King was like four, one of his friends got hit by a train. And that's how they ended up carrying that dead boy home was his pieces in a basket. And it's come up in a couple of other stories. So uh, as soon as I saw that, even though it's just a metaphorical ass being carried home, I immediately thought of the actual grossness of a dead human being carried in a basket. A metaphorical ass in a metaphorical basket? Yes, exactly. So are you going to just, every time we see basket mentioned in a story, call it out as a thinny in the future? Well, only if it's used to describe carrying home human body parts, like an ass. All right. <laughs> and to be fair, you didn't just call it a thinny. This is what you're yucking it up. Yes. And I should say that one of the times we talked about body parts being carried in a basket was in the short story, The Lawnmower Man, which is recently covered on a bonus episode. And how do you get those bonus episodes, Jay? Why, you become a patron, of course. Ah, yes. And at any patron level, you can listen to our bonus episodes. Including The Lawnmower Man. That's right. So become a patron and get access to all that bonus material. You'll love it. And just a reminder, you can do that by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn how to become a patron. Sean, we recently got some listener feedback on Facebook. Oh, that's good. I love it when our listeners respond to the scintillating conversations that you and I have. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. This is from Stephen S. And he wrote us a review on our Facebook page. He said, a must podcast for any Stephen King or Dark Tower fan. These guys are the best. 
Great short but loads of fun podcasts that always leave me smiling and laughing as they palaver about our favorite author. Love everything they do. Do yourself a favor and join and listen. You won't be sorry. Thank you, size. Keep it up. Well, thank you, Stephen S. Yeah, I appreciate that. That that is fantastic. All right, fun stuff. What do you got? What do I have indeed? The laundromat that Dawes is a manager at is the Blue Ribbon Laundry, which is also the laundromat that Stephen King worked in. And along the lines of that, there is a reference to a piece of machinery in the bowels of the laundromat called the Mangler by its users. And we have a short story called the Mangler that we covered on a recent bonus episode. So King was not doing like a hugely great job of hiding his tracks of being Richard Bachman here if somebody wanted <laughs> if somebody wanted to do the detective work. Well, there was a reference to working in an industrial laundry in The Long Walk, too. That's true. Yeah. So King was really writing what he knew when every time he, he needed to give somebody an industrial job that was dangerous, scary. I don't know. I get the feeling that he had that job for a while and there was a machine that scared the living crap out of him. Yeah, I have a feeling that's definitely the truth. That's a good one. Let's see, the first one I have for fun stuff is there's a line, Exxon, the gas company, um, Exxon sounded like the name of a warlord from the planet Urear. <laughs> and to that I say, haha, is that right next to the orbit of the planet Uranus? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, this is why Stephen S. loves our podcast so much. That's right. The butt jokes. <laughs> it's not my fault that Stephen King called this planet Urear. <laughs> It is a uh, novel of the first energy crisis, so Exxon's got to be mentioned here somewhere. So. Yeah, but it would have been so much cooler if it had been sit go. <laughs> sit and go. <laughs> See, your mind went to the, the butt jokes again, but I was thinking Dark Tower thinnies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, as long as we're in the juvenile humor, I thought it was funny when Dawes called the mob guy a dork, and when he calls him that, uh, Magliori says, you know what? I think you're straight. Dork? Was yesterday Monday? Mister, you're lucky you didn't call me a dork on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to have to remember that whenever anyone calls me a name I don't like, I'm going to be like, you're lucky you didn't call me that on Monday. That's a good tough guy reply to anything. Yeah. You're lucky you didn't do that on Monday. <laughs> but today, it's all right. Yeah, I'll let it pass. Yeah. Um, one thing that caught my eye, I, I always get a little bit of a kick out of when I can kind of see through how King comes up with the names of characters, places, and, and other things in the stories. And Dawes lives on a street called Crestallen Street, or probably pronounced Crestallen. And if you put one letter back into that word, it would be Crestfallen Street. And man, is Dawes a <laughs> Crestfallen character. Absolutely. So I dig it. Uh, another fun stuff item I had was a, a connection to the short story, The Ledge which was another bonus episode that we did recently. You listeners, you really do need to become patrons because you're missing out on a lot of great stuff. Anyway, in The Ledge, it involves a bet, and the main character is corrected. No, no, not a bet. It's more sophisticated than that. It's a wager. And almost the same line happens in this story, where Dawes is telling his boss how he's sort of made this bet with his wife about raising money to buy this TV. And his boss says, a bet? The shaggy eyebrows went up half a mile. 
more gentlemanly than that. A wager, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I got a kick out of this line, which I thought was pretty good. Dawes is having trouble sleeping. He had thrashed around while he slept, and the bed had been remolded into enemy territory. And I love that that image of the bed being enemy territory where he can find no uh, no comfort. Yeah, that is a great line. And we've all been there a time or two, at least, where the bed feels like enemy territory. Mm-hmm. Um, so in The Running Man, the main character, Richards, bluffed that he had explosives because he didn't have time to get the real thing. And he uses those to hijack the plane. And here in this story, Dawes actually goes to take the steps to acquire some of the quote-unquote Irish <laughs> that uh, they called it in The Running Man. And the line when he's talking to Magliori, Magliori says, okay, okay, I'll bite. What do you want explosives for? You're going to blow up the Egyptian trade exposition? You're going to skyjack an airplane? Or maybe just blow your mother-in-law to hell? <laughs> like, hmm, skyjack an airplane. You don't say. It's all bad in all the same ways that, that The Running yes. Man is, but it's basically The Running Man story, but if The Running Man had the explosives. Right, exactly. So I mentioned the cover a little bit earlier, and you have to remember that the Bachman books were paperback originals, so they were very much made to catch your eye on the those spinner racks, basically, at an airport or at a cheap bookstore. Mm. And the Roadwork cover, which which you'll see in the show notes, it has this look of like a man's novel, like uh, there's a there's a series called The Executioner uh, that, that it's always got a guy, tough guy with a gun on it. And and that's what this looks like. We've got a view of a man with oddly blonde hair. I didn't picture Dawes as this sort of like six foot blonde Aryan guy holding this giant rifle. Yeah, neither did I. And uh, it's got road work and the, and the logo has like these black and white stripes, like a, like an actual road work sign on either side of road work. But then it's got this great call out. His life was in the path of the wrecking ball, but he wouldn't budge. And, you know, it leads right into this guy standing <laughs> above a, what looks like a house and a, and a crane and a bunch of police cars. And the subtitle, a novel, The First Energy Crisis by Richard Bachman, author of The Long Walk and Rage. It's just quite a piece of art. Yeah. Picture Dolph Lundgren in his Rocky days with a slightly shaggier hairdo wearing a brown corduroy jacket with a fur-lined collar. Yep. It's perfect. <laughs> and you, you got a pretty good guess as to what this looks like. And yeah, you know, if I were walking through an airport and I needed something to read for my flight and I saw this book cover, I don't think I'd read the book. <laughs> but <laughs> no. <laughs> But, but if I until, was in like until I saw that thing about the first energy crisis, <laughs> then and only then. But I mean, it very much looks like a action adventure type novel that you would pick up, spend a, uh, an hour and a half reading, and then leave in the pocket of the airplane, mm -hmm. which was what Bachman was, right? I mean, these paperback originals were very much disposable uh, type stuff, which I'm sure it's hard to find these first edition Bachman stuff. So the final fun stuff item I had was something I've touched on a little bit earlier in the episode, but there's a line, he had been in his office since 1967, over six years, since before Woodstock, before Kent State, before the assassination of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, since before Nixon. And that summary, that time period, and those key events, which surprisingly doesn't include JFK's assassination, but... We're talking about specifically six years. I feel like King's imagination has never left those six years. He has written so many stories 
that either take place during or are reflections on that period of time. Yep. This is a key, key period of time in King's life and psyche. And this book doesn't take place during that time, but the man who Dawes is was shaped by those years too. Yep. So that's a big part of why this story is what it is. Yep. And you got to remember, like King would have been like 18, 19, 20 in those years, mm-hmm. like such a formative time, you know, like that's when you're starting to remember things and you're becoming an adult. And he was in college, which was, I'm sure, eye opening for him just being in college, coming from a small town, but let alone having the events of the world happening here. And, you know, as you said, the hearts in Atlantis. The stand, even though the stand takes place later than that, like all the references are to the to this time period. Mm-hmm. All this stuff is is so important, and he's referenced it over and over again. Yeah, it's a good call out. And that's going to do it for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash Tower. Next episode, join us as we cover road work, part two. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. You murdered my dirter. <laughs> my baby dirter had a baby dirter and somebody murdered her. <laughs> Sean is now making the cat sounds that you heard in a previous episode.